Um, I'm pretty sure I know all of you guys pretty well. Um, my name is Daniel, if you don't know my name. Um, my family, Becca, my son Vinny, uh, we've been around uh, Missio Mesa um, from the beginning, which has been um, really great to see. And like Kevin had mentioned, I'm a part of our cohort with Coral and Nick um, to, to learn, to kind of craft this skill of preaching and speaking. Um, and I was given Psalm 8 as a gift to, to preach. Um, so I've been meditating on this, studying this, and all this type of thing, and spending time in Psalm 8. Um, so I feel like God has given me a word and a, a gift for you guys to speak tonight, which is really, really cool. I'm grateful for that opportunity. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, may the words of my lips and may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So anyone that's spent time around kids in any sort of fashion knows that they ask a lot of questions. And one second they're here, and then the next second they're here. Like my son Vinny, he's 14 months old, almost 15 months, so in one breath he'll be in his bedroom, and then in the second breath he'll be all the way in the kitchen, in the spice cabinet, throwing things around, peppers in his face, and then there's a trail along the way because he's gotten to the bathroom or those different things. But knowing his age and where he's at, he's exploring his surroundings and the world around him through textures. Uh, some, of, some of his favorite things, or one of his favorite things, is this book, Llama Llama, Sand and Sun, which it's a touch and feel book, and one of the pages says, Buckets shovel sand to dig, Llama makes the castle big. But the castle on the page is sandpaper, so his hands are always, they're drawn to the texture or the contrast on the page. Or the next one, let's see, I think it's the towel. No, the other one. Anyways, yeah. Lama Lama at the beach, sunblock hats, one towel each. And the towel is a different texture than the pages in the book around him. But I started thinking, like, how did I start to know things around me? Like, how did I, as a child, learn the things that I did? Did I just remember them? Probably not. But I had... Teach, or teachers and adults and parents and all these folks around me to help me learn, and specifically through contrast. So we learn through contrast or learning through contrast. And teaching children to learn through contrast helps them to describe the world around them, and it broadens their surroundings. Like, oh, this is, I know this is rough because I know something is smooth, or I know something is hot because I know something is cold. So we help them see and feel and know the world around them through contrast. So we're actually going to learn through contrast together. So I've got a couple things, and it's a call and response kind of deal, so I'm going to need all of your guys' help to help me figure this out. So the first one we have is hot. So what do you guys think is a contrast to hot? Cold, right? That was an easy one. So then the next one we have is push. What do you guys think is the other one? Pull. You got it. So then we have day, 
And what's the contrast? Night. And then the last one. So we have the Phoenix Suns. What do you guys think is the contrast to the Phoenix Suns? You're right. The Los Angeles Losers. You guys totally got it. Obviously, it's a little bit sore of a subject because the Suns actually lost last night. And I was actually thinking about wearing all black in morning, but it's okay. It's a win, win, win because we beat the Lakers in the playoffs. And anytime you beat a California team in Arizona, it's a win. It's great. Um, but like we had mentioned earlier, today we're getting into Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is inviting us into a moment of contrast in the life of a guy named David. A situation where he learned about his role and significance in the world through an experience of contrast. Yet first, let's talk a little bit about the Psalms as a whole and those unique little gifts that the book of Psalms offer to God's people. Because Psalms, it's a, it's, a, it's a big book. It's 150 chapters, but it's actually a book that a lot of people don't tend to spend much time in because it's, it's not narrative. It's not a specific letter. It's something that you go back to again and again and again. And as you get into them, you realize like, whoa, these are pretty intense. So I think the Psalms, one of the unique gifts that it offers is that it's a tool. The Psalms have been used by God's people as frameworks for prayer. And one of the things that Jake mentioned last week is that they're actually prayer songs so that God's people could sing his word as they walked, as they lived, as they ate, as they got ready for bed. And the second thing that Jake had mentioned last week is that he preached on Psalm 1, is that the Psalm 1 said that they would meditate on the law day and night. So the Psalms and the author wasn't just saying like, hey, it's a good idea to meditate on God's word day and night and make you feel better. No, it was actually God's people would orient concrete rhythms, concrete times and places to actually have daily experiences of God's word. So the Psalms are a tool. Um, the second thing I think that they offer to us is that they're an invitation. The Psalms are an invitation to express ourselves in the most honest and vulnerable ways. To shed, it's an invitation to shed self-righteous, pious talk and to reveal the true bones of our situation, whether it's in ourselves or it's in around us. Because when we're reading stories, we can just kind of detach ourselves from the characters like, oh, David was doing this or Samuel was doing this and this is what happened in the story. But the Psalms actually invite us into the story themselves and draw out things in us. And that lastly, another gift I think the Psalms have for us is that they're a story, a unique retelling what well, we'll talk about in a second, the biblical story through emotion and inner dialogues. The psalm gives us insight into what the biblical characters were thinking. Like Nick had preached on Samuel when, excuse me, when Samuel was to go to anoint David as a little kid to be king. So we, we see the story and we see the, the story unfold and the characters in it. But what was going on in Samuel's head when God told him to go do that? Or what was going on in David's mind? What was he feeling? What was he thinking? When Samuel comes up to him just as a little kid and says, like, hey, I'm anointing you to be king over my people. The Psalms 
give us an opportunity to think and to actually feel what the characters were thinking and feeling. I like to think of it as whoever's writing the Psalms, because a lot of it's David, but not all of them. So think of like sitting or standing behind someone at a desk or a table, and they're writing a letter. Like you're able to see them write out their thoughts and what they were feeling. Like I said, I talk about the biblical story, and one thing we talk about around here is the true story, that we see the Bible as one story from beginning to end, telling one story that we participate in. And the Psalms are situated in, in, let me see, got it, that are symbols that represent the true story, and the Psalms are situated in those. So the first downward letter stands for creation, that God made all things good, right, and perfect. But it didn't say that way that God's Adam and Eve rebelled against God's reign, and he sent them out. And creation was never the same. But God didn't leave his creation without hope, but he gave his people a promise saying, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations, and through your people, I'm going to send a king. And then we get to the cross, Jesus, the king of all things, and through his life, ushering the kingdom, talking about what the kingdom is through his death, through his resurrection, and bringing about the new kingdom, or the kingdom of God. And then he not only just inaugurated the kingdom, but he's, and something we'll talk about tonight is he's bringing us along with him. So the next symbol, the arrow going to the right, is the church, or the part of the story that we're actually participating in now, and that we work and we play and we enjoy God until the final last arrow, until new creation, when he finally and fully makes all things good, right, and perfect again. So the Psalms are situated in the promise when God's people see all of the things around them just aren't the way they're supposed to be, and they're longing for the king, they're longing for the Messiah, they're longing for this man to come and make all things new. So that's where we find the Psalms um, situated in. So we're digging into Psalm 8. So if you'd like to turn into your Bibles or open an app to Psalm 8, um, a little trick with the Psalms that I always like to point out is if you have a paper Bible and you open right towards the middle, you'll be pretty close. Um, if you see names like Isaiah, Jeremiah, you've gone too far. But if you see numbers like First Chronicles, you're not far enough. So it's about the middle of your paper Bible, and we'll be in Psalm 8. I'll give you just a second to find it. Got it. So I'll read it for us. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens or the skies. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? And human beings that you care for them. You've made him little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You've made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you've put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're going to take this, not quite verse by verse, we're going to lump some verses together, but we're going to go through it um, in bits and pieces. Um, So the first and last verse, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Or another word that you could use for heavens is sky. So think of David standing, looking up at the sky outside. So the psalm begins and ends with the same lines. David is using repetition for a purpose. You'll see this time and time again in the Psalms, and it's a, a gift that the, is unique to the Psalms, is that repetition is used to create emphasis. It's a poetic device to draw our attention to whatever it is the author wants us to focus on. And namely in Psalm 8, Psalm 8 David wants us to focus on God's majesty. It says, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And majestic's not really a word that I use, and it's probably not a word that you guys kind of go around using on a daily basis. But the word majestic is getting at strong, powerful, um, think awesome, or grandeur. So think of an overwhelming experience that you've had that was grand. So think of something as like the first time you put your feet into the ocean. Like I can still picture, I guess it'd be three or four years ago, it really wasn't that long for me, but seeing my nieces, Maddie and Chloe, that live in Texas, see the ocean for the first time and thinking, like, what do I do? But then them putting their feet in the ocean and thinking, like, wow, this is amazing. And they think they're just admiring the ocean for what it is or the water for what it is, but they're actually worshiping God in that moment of grandeur. Or the first time you look... Uh, maybe not everyone's been able to do this, but like see the first time you look into the eyes or the face of a child that's been born, like there's nothing quite like it. Or thinking of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and thinking, wow, this is amazing. Or you may just have a really nice backyard and you just stand on your patio and think, this is beautiful. There are some people here that have stunning backyards. So like I would mention, David is inviting you and I into his experience of contrast, to stop and be overwhelmed and wonder at the majesty of God. David is saying, God, you're so big, you're so grand, you're so expansive, you're higher than the highest thing that I could imagine or see in the world around me. You're huge. That's what Psalm 8 is getting at. Moving on to verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to stop the foe and the avenger. So you can see David again is repeating something as well, using three different words to describe an enemy or a foe. But what David is getting at is that God's glory is demonstrated in that seemingly weak and small things are used to stop God's enemies in their tracks. David is saying, God, your glory is so unique and so expansive that even the sound of children worshiping your name 
is powerful. As God's people cry out to him, he reacts by stopping his enemies in his tracks. Um, and this, this particular verse is actually talked about in an event on Palm Sunday where God's people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And Jesus gets into the temple, throws things around, and the religious leaders are going crazy and they're angry. And they see these little kids in the temple worshiping him. And Jesus is like, haven't you guys read your Bibles at all? Like, this is Psalm, or Psalm 8, verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you're defeating your enemies. So moving on to verses 3 and 4. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? And son of man, or excuse me, and human beings or son of man that you care for them. This is David's learning opportunity, and this is what I want us to walk away with tonight, is that when God is big and we are small, we find our place in the story. When God is big and we are small, we find our place. And when I say small, I don't mean insignificant. And when I, don't say, when I say big, I'm not simply just referring to things that are big size and an object. Like Vinny being sucked into or drawn to things of contrast, David is talking about a life of contrast. When God is big and we are small, we find our place in the story. But David asking these questions, excuse me, what is mankind that you're mindful of him and human beings that you care for him? David is saying, like, God, you're big and I'm small and yet you notice me. Even more than that, you give us a role and partner with us. The God who spoke creation into existence, my life, your life, you've given me, us, immeasurable significance. David is asking these questions and writing it in such a way so that it creates awe and wonder within us. Like, oh, I should be asking these same questions. And to think, and according to the story so far that we've spent the year um, going through, if there's one thing that stands out is that people are just dirt creatures who continue to make a mess. And I just think, David is thinking like, what are you doing, God? You're partnering with me? God, you're so big, and I'm so small, yet you notice me. But more than that, you partner with me. You partner with us. Uh, moving on to verses 8, or excuse me, 5 through 8, kind of lumping these together. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of wild, the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. David is saying, God, you could have done anything that you wanted. You created this whole list of things, which is right out of Genesis 1. In the creation story. You could have done everything, anything you wanted to do, yet you chose to partner with us. 
So when we see God as big and the creator of all things, so expansive, so majestic, and we see ourselves under him within creation, we find our role in the story to play. See, David is showing us this life of contrast that I've been talking about. Like, God, you're here, and the animals are here, and I'm here. I've found my place. And he's inviting us, like we're saying, asking the questions, God, you're here, the animals are here, works around me, and I'm here. I've found my place. And one of the reasons I think that the author is, took the list out of Genesis 1 and just listed everything, like all the fish in the sea and then all that swim the paths of the sea, like just things that we don't even know that are there in the sea we have dominion over. But David is saying, what I think he's saying, is that every area of life, every inch of creation, is an opportunity to declare to a waiting world that Jesus reigns powerfully over all things and that he wants us, you and me, to do it with him. We have incredible significance. Um, So we're going to take a moment to turn in a few groups because we like to do that here, make everyone talk and participate. And I want you guys to discuss a question. I'll give you two or three minutes. How do you see your work or others' work partnering with God? So if God created all things and all things point towards him and he created all of us and gave all of us significance, I mean everything participates with God. So like I said, turn in those groups um, and ask this question and talk about it. How do you see your work or others' work partnering with God? All right. Go ahead and try and start wrapping those conversations up. And I love this question because everyone has to participate. No one gets to play the card of not participating because all of life, everyone's life, whether you're just starting your career or long retired and sitting by the pool, everyone gets to participate in the story and in this life of contrast that I think David is inviting us into. So like we said, we, we think of, of the Bible as one true story from beginning to end. Uh, but the, the main character or the hero of that story, believe, we believe, is Jesus. That Jesus is the hero of the story. And that all of life and all of the story either points towards Jesus or is coming from Jesus. So Psalm 8 is quoted several times within the New Testament, but then there's, like I mentioned earlier on Palm Sunday, when Jesus directly quotes, and it's like, hey, this point to me. Um, there's one area in the New Testament that i read in just a moment that Jesus highlights this life of contrast that I think David is talking about in Psalm 8. Um, so in the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 2, and you can turn there now, we're going to have it on the screen. Um, Jesus talking about, or Jesus, 
the author of Hebrews talking about how Jesus lived, perfectly lived this life of contrast. Um, so in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. So it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where somewhere someone has testified, Psalm 8, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, and the Son of Man that you care for them, care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to them, not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower, small, than the angels for a little while, and now crowned big with glory and honor because he suffered death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And bring many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, the hero of the story, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death and his resurrection. Jesus was made low so that he could be lifted high and made big in authority. Through his death, through his resurrection, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see come in the New Testament, he is inviting us into a life of contrast with him. He's inviting us to say, God, you're big and I'm small, and live and reign together as we cultivate the world around us in the ways that we live and work and to declare the good news to ourselves, our neighbors, our cities, and the world. So all of this is good. And God in his wisdom allows us to participate in that story and calling us to do that together. But where do we go from here, from Psalm 8 and what we learned, and how does that equip us to live, as I would say, missionaries in our world now. And I think there's two things Psalm 8 does for us. That we should stop and wonder. Wonder is layered into the fabric of creation. Our lives in the world don't work as they should if we're perpetually in motion, going from one thing to the next not being able to take the time and have the margin to stop and look at God's creation. As David did, we can stand at the end of the Grand Canyon or we can put our feet in the ocean or it's probably going to rain a lot this week, hopefully, or we can stand in the patios or outside and the sidewalk and just look at the monsoon rains and feel the wind blow on our faces and think, wow. God, you're powerful, you're mighty, or as the psalm said, majestic, and yet you're mindful of me. Um, and secondly, I think one of the things in which Psalm 8 helps us to live as missionaries in the world now is to bring the kids. 
Just think, how many times have kids around you or extended family or within, within Missio Mesa gotten you in situations that you would have never gotten yourself in? Vinny's just 14, 15 months, and he's already put me in situations that I never thought I would put myself in because, you know, the experience. God uses kids to stop enemies in their tracks. Like in verse 2, the kids worshiping the name of God stops their enemies. And I think one of the unique gifts of Missio Mesa is that the kids get to sit in here with us and sing. And we have kids that have some loud pipes, which is great. And as, I mean, if you're into music or not, like, it can be a little frustrating if they start getting out of tune and getting ahead or below or whatever it is. But you think, God's in, God is using that voice to stop his enemies and to display this life of contrast that we're talking about, that when we're small and he's big, we find our place in the story that he's given us. Um, so we're going to end... Um, with a prayer out of a book um, called Every Moment Holy that I think just captures this idea of contrast and wonder um, great. And it's actually, it's called a liturgy for stargazing. So it's perfect, just like David did. Um, But one thing I want you to do as I'm reading the words, you don't have to close your eyes or anything like that, but picture a place where you have seen or felt this overwhelming experience of grandeur. Whether it was the first time you went to the ocean or went to Disneyland or whatever it may be. Think about this idea of majestic. Think of that overwhelming experience of grandeur. O great architect of these intricate heavens, We have assembled under open skies this night to ponder your handiwork, to be moved to wonder at the poetry of your thoughts revealed in endless patterns of light. How limitless the creative power of the one who first scattered these star fields as a sower flinging bright seeds. How how fathomless the thoughts of the one who named and remembers each burning star and who also names and remembers each each of us. Now you, his people, lift your eyes to the heavens and consider his handiworks. Constellations rise and descend the staircase of night at your command, O Lord. Galaxies spin like dancers, space and time bend and bow to the gravity of your great will. In such holy wonders, Baptize our imaginations that we might ever be a people shaped by awe at your eternal power and a people moved to worship by revelations of your divine nature. Awaken our hearts now to beat in rhythm to the tune, to the dance of your creation. Tune our ears to hear the songs of stars in their trillionfold choruses, bearing witness to your glory and power. Use these bright expressions of your extravagant beauty to stoke our holy longings, wetting our appetites afresh for all that is eternal and good. 
You made this vastness, and by your love you placed us in it, fixed among the wonders. So let us be stirred, O Lord, by the night skies such as these, lifting our thoughts to you, our maker, and to the vast and beautiful infinitude of your designs. O Spirit of God, draw praise from us here in this cathedral of creation beneath the starry dome. Awaken our adoration in this place where we feel so very small, yet so greatly loved. Amen. Amen. When we consider places that cause us to be filled with awe and wonder, uh, I do pray that weekly this table serves as one of those reminders. That as we come to this meal of bread and, and juice, that, that it reminds us that we are, uh, yes, small but loved. That we are, God is a great God who's writing a grand story that extends throughout all history. Yes, that's all absolutely true. But we are so intimately loved that he was willing to live, die, and resurrect, bringing us into his family. And so may this meal never be something that we come to that is just uh, out of tradition or out of obligation, but would it be a moment for us to consider the cost that God's love was willing to pay to rescue and redeem us? That we stare at the expanse of the universe, but then also the expression of love of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, that God loved and rescues and redeems and renews and brings life into the dead places through the power of the mystery of the gospel. So I wanna read these words before we come to the table and David's gonna lead us in another song. But as you come to the table, remember this, in the Lord's Supper, Christ offers his own crucified body and shed blood to his people, assuring us a share of his death and his resurrection. Consider the, the, this incredible reality. By the Holy Spirit, he feeds us with his resurrection life and binds us to each other as we share one loaf and one cup. We receive this food gladly, believing it's as we eat, that Jesus is our life-giving food and drink. And that he will come again and call us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Monsieur de Mesa, we approach this table and eat this bread and drink this cup professing the belief in this great mystery. Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has resurrected, and Jesus will come again. I invite you over this next song to come to the table, take a piece of the bread if you're a follower of Jesus, take the juice, uh, receive communion on your own as you stare in awe and wonder that this great God greatly loves you, gifts you, empowers you, and sends you out. And so come, you're welcome at the table. Oh.